Do you have any Lord? When we come again, Lord, to hear from you, to hear your word, that your people may know Christ for their eternal life. Our eternal life is in our knowing Christ. It's in our being in Christ. And Lord, we can't love Jesus whom we do not know. And Lord, may you cause your people to want to know more about Christ, more about Jesus. Let me learn. That's what the song says. And Lord, we pray that you reveal Jesus to us as we go into the scriptures, as he's going to tell us and say, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. And Lord, may we see Christ in your scriptures. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was looking at the remainder of the verses in John 5, and I thought I was going to squeeze them and do maybe one message, one last message on the witnesses. But it turns out that as I was reading John 5, 39, and 40, I realized there was no way that I was going to be able to preach both of them together. They need two separate sermons. John 39 and 40 require two separate sermons to even get a little bit of understanding. So today, we'll concentrate on just verse 39. So, John 39 is essentially calling us to how we are supposed to read the scriptures. To say, if we read the Bible and we come out with anything which is less than Jesus, then we have reduced the Bible to any book that you can find anywhere in the world. The Bible is unique in that Jesus says, when you read it, and if you are reading it right, you have to come to one conclusion, Jesus Christ. So every time that we read the Bible, we have to find Jesus. And when you hear men who preach from the Old Testament, but Jesus here is talking about the Old Testament. And they struggle to find Jesus in the Old Testament. And most of their sermons are sermons about examples. How can we be like Elijah? Where are our Elijahs of our day? Where is David? Oh, look at Joseph. How faithful he was. This is how the Old Testament is preached by a good majority of preachers. And Jesus is going to tell us that when you do that, it's useless preaching. It doesn't help anybody with anything that's fleshly. Because those stories could have been recorded in any other book and just be as motivating stories or motivational as they are to a lot of people. But we do not read the scriptures that way. We read the scriptures 
the way that the Lord would have us read them. So this is what the Lord said in John 5, 39. You say the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The Lord Jesus here is giving the Jews a witness. Remember, this is still about witness. The Lord has been giving testimony of himself. And this is coming from the Jews. Accusing him and the man that he healed of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, the work that I do, like healing this man on the Sabbath, is testifying of who I am. John the Baptist has testified of me. God the Father has testified of me. The works that I do have testified of me. And guess what? You do not believe my testimony. You do not believe the testimony of my Father. And I'm going to tell you some more and say, even the scriptures that you hold dear, they do testify of me. And if you are reading them right, you should also come to the conclusion that this is the person to whom they are testifying. So the Lord is going to give us what we call a hermeneutic. That is a way of reading and interpretation. Reading and interpreting and understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. He is going to say, if you are using the Bible for anything else which is not for the purpose of seeing him as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, as the Redeemer of those who are in sin, he says you are reading the Word of God in vain. If we take the Bible solely as a manual for ordering our lives, for helping our marriages, helping our families, helping our jobs, and that's all we get from them, Jesus says, you have read the word of God in vain. And yet we acknowledge that the Bible does give ways to better our lives. He gives ways on how to live our lives better. But if it does not lead you to an understanding of how you can be made right before God, then you are reading them in vain. And every time that we meet, we have to always be reminded that Christ is the reason why the scriptures were given. And Christ was given that you may know how you can stand before a holy and righteous God without being condemned. As I like to say, the problem that we have as sinners is not because we are sinners. Your sin, your sin really doesn't do anything to you because that's already what you do. The problem that you have is that God is holy. Because if God is not holy, no one is going to judge you for sin. 
You get away with everything. So the biggest problem that every man has is that God is holy and we are not. And because we are not, the Bible is showing you the way that you're going to bridge the gap. The way that you're going to make it right with God. In the church world, people come and create their own agendas. Their own movements. Their own organizations. So as to distract others from Christ. They start doing their own things. By which they think God is going to approve them. And they think they are approved by their own approval of the things that they have determined to do for themselves. And say, God, look at what I have been doing for you. You accept me on that basis. And this is a cause of stumbling for a lot of people because people... They think they want to please God. But they get way too ahead of themselves because they assume who God is. They assume who Jesus is. They assume they know how they get right with God and say, all that is now secondary to me. Give me some things to do. I want to do some things. Now, when they start doing these things, they start to have their own cliques within the church. And guess what? They lose the grounding that they really need, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Apostle Paul talks about that in Galatians. If you still remember from Galatians. That Christ profits you nothing. You who seek to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace and Christ profits you nothing. Why? Because they're not understanding what the scriptures are teaching them. The Lord Jesus said in Psalm 47, Psalm 40 verse 7, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. In the scroll of the book, it's written about Jesus. So what were the Jews who had the scroll doing? The Jews are the ones who had the oracles of God. The Jews, according to the Lord Jesus, were searching and were studying the scriptures diligently. They were really very good at studying the scriptures. And they thought that somehow by this exercise and effort, they would and could attain eternal life in this life and the life to come. What's interesting in this statement by the Lord Jesus is that he did acknowledge that they were very diligent in what they were doing. All people who do not come to the gospel are diligent in what they're doing. They're actually very serious people. They're very, very committed to what they're doing. They're very religious about what they're doing. But Jesus says that's not going to profit them. It's not their sincerity that profits them. It's the knowledge of the truth that profits people. And he says, yes, what you are doing is commendable, but that is not how eternal life is had. The whole book is written to give the testimony 
of Christ. The testimony of Christ as the basis, as the only basis by which you shall be justified. So the scriptures testify of Christ. The law and the prophets all testify to the person and work of Christ. And God has, with the scriptures, been testifying of his son. Right from Genesis, God the Father is testifying of his son. The Holy Spirit is testifying of his son. And Jesus Christ is testifying of himself. So, if we are then to profit from reading the Old Testament, because we say we are under the New Covenant, but that does not mean that there's no theology of the New that is in the Old. The Old is just concealed. The New is the key that opens the Old. So we can preach the Gospel from the old because we are using the light of the new to really see what God was teaching by that. So when people say, oh, we are under the new covenant, they're basically saying, I'm going to rip the Old Testament out of my Bible. The Old Testament is still the word of God, but it has to be understood properly as declaring the person of Jesus Christ who has been revealed in the new. So if we are following the method of Jesus, of reading the scriptures, we cannot go to Genesis, to Exodus, to Isaiah, to the Psalms, to any place of the Old Testament, and not be trying to look for him. Look for him. But you can't look for Jesus in the old if you don't understand the Jesus of the new. You have to understand the Jesus of the new. You have to understand the gospel. What does the gospel say about Jesus and the work of Jesus? So when you see the pictures of redemption, you see the pictures of situations in people's lives that require redemption, you bring the understanding of the new to that situation and see Christ in them. So we have the actions the peoples in the Old Testament, we have the events, we have the feasts, we have the institutions, we have the tabernacle, we have the priesthood, we have the garments, we have the sacrifices, we have all these things are doing one thing. They are preaching Christ. They are preaching Christ. So we can never go wrong if we go to the Old Testament and look for Christ. And some people will say, oh, you can't go to the Old Testament and teach people to see Christ in there. That's bad. <laughs> I actually had someone say that to me. You can't teach people typology because then people will go and see Christ. <laughs> and that's bad. So what Jesus is saying is what in theology is called typology, the study of types and shadows. You look at Elijah. Who is Elijah? The Tishbite. Was he just Elijah the Tishbite? What was he doing? In what way was what Elijah doing mirroring what Christ would come and do himself? 
So the scriptures testify of Jesus and his gospel. And I'm going to give you, you can never exhaust this. Once you go on this way of reading scriptures, you get blown away, you get tired. Your mind just gets tired. But you realize, oh my goodness, Lord have mercy. This is all about Jesus. I'm going to give you some understanding of some things that the Old Testament teaches that reveals Christ. But they reveal Christ not in an obvious way as we have just been learning from 2 Samuel about David and Bathsheba. We see the scriptures testifying of Jesus in the first Adam. When you read Genesis and the first Adam and you get hung up on Adam sinned because of his free will. He was bad. And I heard John Hagee said when he gets to heaven, one of the things that he's going to do was to kick Adam because he sinned and cause mankind to fall into sin. He doesn't realize that without the sin of Adam, there's no hope for John Hagee. Adam has to sin. If the second Adam who saves has to come. Romans 5.14 Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So, Adam, the first Adam was a type of him who was to come. Adam was the type of Christ. So when you are reading Genesis, after you are done with the story, we now have to understand in what way was Adam a type of Christ. According to Romans 5, which we shall read more of, Adam stood as the federal head, as the representative of all humanity. According to Romans 5, all history rests in two persons. The first Adam and the second Adam. And it matters in which Adam you end up in. If you end up in just the first Adam, you only can reap corruption and condemnation. If you end up in the second Adam, you find life and justification. So we see the first Adam as the federal head of all humanity and the legal representative of all humanity. So that in the first Adam, condemnation of humanity came by his act of transgression. You are not condemned because of you. You are condemned already. You are born condemned. Because your condemnation is in your legal representative, the first Adam. And you are justified in the second Adam. Your justification is in the second Adam. So everything comes down to the first Adam and the second Adam. So if Adam had not fallen, all humanity would have remained innocent, but not righteous. 
all humanity would have remained innocent, but not righteous as Christ is righteous. And for you to have life, you need to be more than innocent. You need to possess the righteousness of God. So you hear Apostle Paul in Romans saying, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. So the gospel is given that you may possess the righteousness of the second Adam who brings the righteousness of God. The first Adam could not give you a righteousness that would give you an everlasting standing with God. So this is Romans 5, 12 to 19. I'm just going to read it. I'm not, I'm not going to spend much time on it because there's something for when we get Romans 15 years from now. Romans 5, 12 to 19 the contrast that would help a lot of people a lot of preachers will be helped if they knew that romans 5 existed that would cut a lot of foolishness that they say because from reading this chapter you learn that the events of the garden of eden were not accidental god was not surprised that Eve and Adam sinned. That was God's plan. And if you would say this to a lot of people who don't know the gospel and the God of the Bible, they think you are blaspheming. They are the ones who don't know what they're talking about. Let's hear Romans 5, 12 to 19. Therefore, just as through one man, you see the contrast is going to be one man and the other man. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, all sinned in the one man. That's imputation. And you can't preach the gospel without that first imputation. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. So he's just saying, the basis of imputation is a law. You have to have a basis on which you say, Becca is guilty. But that does not mean that she's not guilty. God already knows that she's guilty. She is the one who has to know that she's guilty. So the law was given to tell her that she's a sinner. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The judgment came from one transgression by one man and condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So do you see the opposite of condemnation 
is justification. Condemned, justified. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, so death reigned through the sin of Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. One to one. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. You see, just one transgression. One transgression. And it wasn't even adultery. It wasn't even murder. Just eating. Just eating. And death came to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, one act of obedience, there is out a justification of life to all men. This is not teaching that all men will be saved. It is saying the first Adam was the basis of the condemnation of all men because all men came after the first Adam. But with the second Adam, it's all men who are in the second Adam. And not all men are in the second Adam, but all men are in the first Adam. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So do you see that? In the first Adam, you were made a sinner and you were condemned. In the obedience of Christ, you were made righteous. So do you see how you get righteous? You get righteous only in the obedience of Christ. Someone will say, okay, this imputation is not fair because God did not give me a chance to be righteous by myself like he did with the first Adam. I'll tell you, that's foolishness. You want to be condemned in the first Adam that you may be justified in the second because you have no ability to get the obedience that the second Adam gives by yourself. It's impossible. So praise the Lord for imputation. So now, with that understanding, we have been told that if we are reading the first Adam right, if we go to Genesis and we are reading the story of Adam, the Holy Spirit is saying, if you are understanding it right, you have to see Christ and salvation in them. So in Genesis 3, we first hear of the telling of the gospel. Genesis chapter 3, we hear the story of the gospel. After Adam and Eve had sinned, what did they try to do? They started attending the Fig Leaf Baptist Church, according to Adam Morris. They tried to sow some fig leaves and try to cover themselves. But what happened? Genesis 3.21 The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What does that mean? What does that imply? God had to kill to make atonement for them. He had to provide a covering for them, for their shame because of sin, by the death of 
something in their place. Remember, the commandment was, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. They ate, they died, but they did not die. Why? Because God made a sacrifice offering for them. God himself gave them a sacrifice, a type of the sacrifice of Christ. And they lived because God killed a substitute that he alone provided, not their fig leaves. And he alone came and covered them. Because your own covering of yourself is insufficient. God has to do the covering. So death came only by sin. And God was already saying, I am going to provide my own covering for your sins. And this is the first preaching of the gospel of grace. The curse on Eve had the promise of the seed. The seed of the woman. Genesis 3, 15 and 16. Here's what he says. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And a lot of people go there and they extract as much as they can extract about gender roles and what is to happen in the marriage. Yes, you can get that understanding. But this is about the gospel. Listen to this. The curse that God pronounced on Eve speaks to the travails of Christ on the cross. This was a prophetic curse that spoke to the labor pains of Christ on the cross as he was giving birth to children that God wanted. The command that was given to Adam was that he was to bear children to God who were in the likeness of God. Adam did not bear children who were in the likeness of God because he bore children who were in his likeness, the fallen Adam. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, comes and he gives children to God who are born after the image of God. And if Jesus has to bear children, he has to undergo through labor pains. And he goes through labor pains. And this is what is being said. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you bring forth children. Jesus is going to go through the pain of God's judgment on the cross to bring forth children to God. Listen to this. Adam and Eve had failed on their mandate to go forth and multiply and bring children who are made in God's image. And so Christ has to stand in their place. He has to stand as the representative and suffer the birth pangs 
of one who is pregnant with child on the cross. Listen to Jesus himself, John 16, 21. This is the Lord in anticipation of the cross. This is what he says. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. He's talking about the cross. And he pictures himself as the woman who is in sorrow because why? He is about to experience the pain of God's judgment. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So the Lord Jesus Christ, in his understanding, he says the birth of a child is a type, it's a summary of what he experienced on the cross. So the birth of a child is for preaching Christ. That's what it's all about. The heavens declare all creation was created to preach Christ. The birth of a child is God preaching Christ. And as we shall learn, marriage is not marriage so that you guys can raise kids together. Marriage is given to preach Christ. So Jesus saw himself like a woman giving birth to children. And he is the one that Apostle John is going to say, he who came by water and the blood. Water and the blood. Why water and the blood? Because those are fluids of birth. And you know the Roman soldier, he poked the Lord on the side. And what came out of his side? Water and blood. Those are fluids of birth. Those are fluids that gave you a new birth. And when the Lord was talking about the new birth with Nicodemus in John 3, he ended up tying the new birth to the cross. So on the cross, that is where you were given a new birth. That is the basis on which you are born again. We have death. We have the death and resurrection of Christ in Genesis 2. Hear this, Genesis 2, 21 to 25. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now born of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What happened to Adam? For Eve to be formed. God did not make Eve from the dust of the earth as he did Adam. He could have done that. Why didn't he do it? Because the first Adam is a type of Christ. And if he is a type of Jesus, he had to die. That God may remove a rib from him and form Eve. If Adam is a type of Christ 
Eve is a type of what? The church. Listen to this. This was a mystery of the church. God was teaching the mystery of the church and the relationship that the church has to Jesus. Adam had to be put to sleep. So Adam had to die in a way. Adam had to die in a way, but Adam could not remain sleeping. Because if Adam remained sleeping, he could not be joined to the new bride. Because he had never seen Eve. Adam had never seen Eve. He didn't know what Eve was going to look like. So God had to raise Adam who was dead that he may be able to join him to his new bride. So God had to raise Adam from the dead. A type of the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ is resurrected, Christ is resurrected to do what? If Jesus dies and he has a bride and he fails to come from the grave, Jesus remains dead and the church will never be joined to Jesus. If Adam remains sleeping as he was sleeping and God does not raise him, Adam will never see Eve. So that was the mystery of the gospel. So in Adam, God was already preaching the death and resurrection of Christ. So we see then that Adam did not fall by accident. Adam fell because in his fall, God was preaching his son. It was necessary. If Jesus has to be revealed, it was necessary that the first Adam fall. God from eternity always intended to bring Jesus this way. Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus was not God's plan B of, okay, I didn't realize men could do this. So what am I going to do? Uh, Holy Spirit, do you think you can go and be the sacrifice for sin? And the Holy Spirit says, no, I can't do that. Ask Jesus. Hey, Jesus, do you think you can go and save these people? Uh, let me think about it. I'll get back to you in a week or so. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. This is what God's plan has always been. That if anyone has to come to him, they have to come to him. Not through the first Adam, because that would have glorified the first Adam, who is just man. If you have to come before God, it has to be through the obedience of the second Adam, who is the son of God. So the devil was just an instrument in the glorification of Christ. Now we are talking proper biblical teaching. The devil was just and is just even today an instrument in the glorification of Jesus. But Jesus is the one who's going to throw him into the lake of fire. And if Jesus can throw him in the lake of fire in the future, Jesus would 
have been able to throw the devil in the lake of fire way back when. Jesus was not waiting because he was trying to summon more strength and going to the gym to see if he could have stronger muscles. No. All is working to the glory of Christ. All is working to the glory of Christ. But listen to this. We will never cover all typology, but what I want to seed in your minds and hearts is the proper way of reading the Bible. So that you, when you read, the Lord begins to open these things for you and you see them for yourself. Like, oh, wow, why was I not seeing all these things all this time? You ask questions like, why did Eve eat the forbidden fruit first instead of Adam? Why did Eve eat the forbidden fruit first instead of Adam? Because the ordering matters. The ordering changes everything in the understanding of the preaching of the gospel. Because that question is saying, if Christ, okay, I'll wait on Christ. I'll connect Christ later. Let me go back and develop my story to my question. And then I'll bring back Christ to the question. Remember, it was not Adam who sinned first. Even though the condemnation was placed on Adam as the legal representative. But it's not Adam who sinned first. It's Eve who sinned first. And remember the commandment. The commandment said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. If Eve eats by herself, she is dead. If Eve eats by herself and Adam does not come and eat, guess what? Eve is gone. She is condemned forever. And Adam remains innocent, uncondemned. But remember what God also said in verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If Eve is by herself, she is condemned by herself, and that commandment from God does not apply. They are not joined as one flesh. They are already separated for eternity. Listen to this. And Adam could not be separated from his bride. For they had already become one flesh. But one of them is now under the curse of death. One of them is now under the curse of condemnation. Eve, like Bathsheba, is also destined to die. And Adam cannot be separated from his bride. If Adam cannot be separated from his bride, there's only one way that Adam can join his bride. By eating. If Adam eats the fruit, guess what? He also is under the same condemnation. Now, they are joined in condemnation. Now, both of them are joined in condemnation. But listen to this. Adam eats from the tree that Eve gave her that he also may be condemned together with his bride. This is the love that Adam has for Eve. He can't let Eve be by herself. 
he too has to come and be condemned together with Eve. They have to be condemned together. He has to be united to his bride even in death and condemnation. <laughs> Do you see where this is going? The second Adam, the sinless and righteous one, comes and he unites himself to his bride, to his church. The church that was innocent? No. The church that was condemned. The church is condemned. Jesus Christ is not condemned. Jesus is righteous. The first Adam is not condemned. He is righteous. His bride is condemned. Jesus, the second Adam, is righteous, but his bride is condemned. So in what way and what option does Jesus have to be joined to his bride? Because if things remain this way, his bride is going to hell. The bride of Christ has to go to hell unless Jesus comes and he joins them. And he joins them by incarnation. By incarnation, that is the taking up of human flesh to be like one of us. Jesus comes and he takes the sins of his bride that he may be joined to his bride in condemnation. And because we have been joined to Jesus by condemnation, by his condemnation, by imputation of our sins to him, because he's justified, we are also joined to his justification. We are also joined to his justification. And this is some point. It just came to my mind as I'm talking. Remember, condemnation happened in the first Adam. And do you know where it happened? It happened on a tree. Where is our justification? On the cross. On another tree. The justification of the church, the bride of Christ, is on the cross. It's another tree. It's a cursed tree. He comes and he removes the curse by hanging on a tree. Listen to this. The first tree, the fruit of the first tree, brings death. The fruit of the first tree brings death and condemnation. The fruit of the second tree, Jesus, the bread from heaven, brings life. Amen. Justification. The second Adam has united himself, united himself to his church. Because that's what Genesis was teaching. But God does not teach it in the way that people want him to teach it. He veils it so that you only understand it by revelation. You don't get this stuff outside God revealing it. No man can come up with this kind of stuff. No man can preach Christ in Bathsheba and David. And no man can preach Christ in this story as we are learning. So now we are told that we have a mystery of marriage because in the first Adam uniting with Eve, he said 
God said that was a mystery of marriage. They have to be united and become one. So the mystery of marriage is that it represents Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. And I'm not even making it up. Because it's in Ephesians. Ephesians 22 to 32. I'm just going to read it. Ephesians 22 to 32. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Do you see the connection? The husband is a type of Christ, and the wife is the type of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave up himself in condemnation that he may remove the curse and the condemnation that was on his bride. So that he might do what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or, or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Listen to the last part of the verses. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. That's what I'm saying. Jesus loves his people as he loves his own body. If we could meditate on that, it's glorious. For no one ever hated his own flesh. So Jesus never hated us. Even though we broke the law of God. So he loved his church so much that he died for it. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So you see the basis of all these things is Christ is the pattern that we are following. Because we are members of his body. Listen to vested one. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. <laughs> Jesus had to leave his father. He left his father that he may come to his bride and be joined to his bride. This mystery is great. Apostle Paul calls it it's a mystery. And it's great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's saying that commandment in Genesis was basically given to preach the relationship that Christ has with the church. Okay, we're done with that. Noah and the ark. After the flood, all humanity has been wiped off from the face of the earth. And Noah alone and his family was left. Noah is a type of the second Adam because he receives the same mandate as the first Adam. The first Adam is gone. So the same mandate that had been given him is repeated to Noah in Genesis 9-7, which says, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. But what 
happened to Noah? Noah, even though he was the new fed federal head, see that? Noah is the new federal head because all humanity has been wiped off. So you need a new Adam. So Noah is the new Adam because now all men are going to come in the second Adam. So Noah is the type of the second Adam. Okay, listen to this. But Noah fails at that mandate. Why? Because he's a sinner. He gets drunk. But still, the Lord preached the gospel through the ark. The ark was a type of Christ. The ark was a type of Christ, and water is a type of judgment. So those who are in the ark, even though there's judgment, they never get touched. They live. They survive. Why? Because God sealed the ark. He's the one who closed the ark from the outside. It's God who closed the ark from the outside and no one was destroyed. The Lord comes and he raises Abraham and he establishes a covenant, a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, he promises Abraham of all things. There are a number of things in there. There was a land promise. But the most significant promise in that was that of the seed of Abraham. And we are told, Abraham believed God. And God says, I reckon it to you as righteousness. And this establishes the ground of justification in the gospel according to Paul, as we read in Romans chapter 4. But not only that. God preached the miraculous birth of Christ through the birth of Isaac. An unusual birth. A miraculous birth by a woman who was past childbearing age. Way past menopause. And it is this child that God comes and commands Abraham to go offer as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. When I read that, Genesis 22, verse 2, and then I'm going to skip to verse 7, and then, sorry, Genesis 22, verse 2, and then I'm going to skip the other verses and go to verse 7 and read all the way to 17. This is what God says, this is what God said when he came to Abraham. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had taught him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. What do we see? Isaac is a special child. Born miraculously. And he is a type of Jesus. He is a type of Christ. Abraham is told to take his son, take now your son, your only son. How can that be? Abraham already has another son with Hagar, Ishmael. Ishmael is about 14 years old when Isaac was born. So how then does God come and ask Abraham to take his only son, the one whom you love, you see, God is really making sure that there's no misunderstanding of whom God is talking about. Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I'll tell you. Isaac is Abraham's son. Look at the language. The one and only son whom he loves. Jesus, the one and only son the only begotten of the Father, whom the Father loves, who is in the bosom of the Father. And Isaac has to be offered as a burnt sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Guess what? Mount Calvary. Mount Moriah. Yes. On the same range of mountains. The range of mountains called Mount Moriah. This is where Calvary was. But here it is. The angel of the Lord, he comes as the angel of the Lord, but suddenly he starts talking like God himself. That's Jesus. When you read in the Old Testament, and you're reading about an angel who talks like God, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. So he speaks now as God himself. But listen to this. Just as Abraham was about to offer his son, this is what happened. Verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Sounds like substitutionary atonement. In the place of his son. A ram that was caught in the thicket by his horns. The ram that was caught in the thicket by the horns, as Jesus, the Lamb of God, had a crown of thorns on his head. 
And getting where? Getting ready to go to the cross to die as the burnt sacrifice. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Listen to this. This is the resurrection of Jesus in Isaac. The resurrection of Jesus preached in the story in Genesis 22. Hear what he says. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Oh, only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So the events in Genesis 22, God is saying, the fact that Abraham almost offered his son, God considered that as Isaac already offered. And the fact that there was a stay of execution, God was saying, I was preaching the death and resurrection. So that whole experience was teaching the death and resurrection of Christ. So Isaac was a type. He received Isaac back as it were by resurrection. Type of Christ. Resurrection in Genesis 22. Joseph and his brothers. The story of Joseph and his brothers is a story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, we are just touching and we are not really going deep. Because I'm really itching to say a whole lot more. But we'll get there. One of these days, one of these communions, the Lord willing, we'll get one of these stories and we expand it and draw more theology from it. The story of Joseph and his brothers is a story of the gospel of Jesus. It is not about how to be brave in the face of temptation like Joseph was with Potiphar's wife. Joseph did not succeed because he was wise and hardworking. He succeeded, according to the scriptures, because God was with him. But God was with him because in Joseph, God was weaving the gospel of Jesus Christ. How so? He is sold into slavery by his own brothers, rejected by his own as the Lord who came to his own and was not received, was rejected. They, his brothers, the Jews, crucified him. Joseph goes into Egypt, a type of the world, and he delivers God's people from starvation by his wisdom. The wisdom that God gave him. Jesus comes into the world that is under condemnation. That is dying of starvation because of sin. The wilderness. Just as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness. The wilderness of this world. And he delivers his people from death. Joseph is sent to prison. The dungeon. Going into the dungeon is going into the grave. It's a type of the death of Christ. And we know after D Joseph had made an interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh, 
He was taken out of prison. He was raised out of the dungeon. That is the resurrection of Jesus. And after the resurrection of Joseph out of the dungeon, Joseph is elevated to become what? The prime minister of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. Just as Jesus after his resurrection, he was raised to the right hand of God. Raised to the right hand of God. Listen to this. Joseph recognized and wept for his brothers. He came to his own. His own did not recognize him. His brothers who had, as it were, pierced him. They pierced him. And we know from Zechariah 12, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Hear this beautiful theology from Genesis 45. We're going to have bits and pieces. We're not reading the whole chapter. I have verses here and there. Verses 1 to 5, and then 7 to 8, and then 22. Listen to this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I am your brother Jesus, whom you killed on the cross. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And to preserve life is the statement of the gospel and the suffering of Christ. Listen to Genesis 45, 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Genesis 45, 22. You get to hear this. To each of them, he gave changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. After having accepted his brothers and forgiven them, what did Joseph do? He gave them, all of them, changes of garments. New clothes, a type of the righteousness of Christ, a type of the righteousness of Christ. All who are the brothers of Christ, even though they used to hate him, when they come to him, this is what Christ does to all of them, for all of them. He gives them new garments. He gives them his righteousness. And that is justification. That is justification. Here, Isaiah 61.10. We're getting done. Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me 
with the garments of righteousness. With the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with the jewels. So that's what Joseph, this was actually one of the very last things that he did. After having given them the food, he gave them the clothes to cover their shame and their nakedness. And it is from Egypt that we have the Exodus. It is from Egypt that we have the Passover lamb. We have the deliverance from God's judgment by the blood of the Passover lamb that God commanded. And we have the blood that was sprinkled on the lintels of the doors, which blood was only visible even though it was pitch black. Pitch black. And yet that blood was visible to the death angel. And Christ comes and he is the Lamb of God, whose blood is visible to God. So what matters is the blood that is on you is visible not to you because you are in the pitch of darkness. You can't even see how dark the condemnation and sin that you are in. But what matters is God sees it. So some people start looking to see the blood of Christ in the things that they do. No, you're not going to see it. What matters and your encouragement is that God is the one who sees it. And that's enough. And that's enough for your salvation. So it is in Egypt that all these things were given. The tabernacle, the furniture, the priests, the sacrifices were all introduced coming out of Egypt as a way of approaching God. That's the reason why all those things were given. They were given to teach you how to approach God. That's why they were given. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 11. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So all those things could never perfect those people. They were only given as shadows, as types, as things that were leading you to Jesus. So based on that, Jesus will then come and say, if you are reading these things right, you can only come to one conclusion. They were talking about me. If you were reading these things right, you could only come to one conclusion that they talk about me, they testify of me, and even after his resurrection, Luke records for us and says, in Luke 24, 25 to 27, oh, we're almost there. This is what he says. Luke 24, 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish man and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So what does it mean to begin with Moses? 
Where are you beginning? If you're beginning with Moses. You're beginning with Genesis. And both Genesis was written by Moses. So Jesus went and from Genesis all the way to the prophets. Just pointing. Saying, you see that? That's me. <laughs> you see this? That's me. So what, what things was the Christ to suffer? All the Old Testament types and shadows of Christ. Isaiah 53. Psalm 22. The suffering of Christ. Remember Jonah. Jesus is saying all that is talking about me. So then, our conclusion is if we are reading the scriptures right, we have to be working and asking God to show us Christ. Show me Christ in this. The scriptures are profitable for a lot of things. But first and foremost, they are profitable because they lead you to the knowledge of Jesus. They are God's witness of his own son. They are God's teaching about his son that you may know him and his gospel and be saved. To know him not just as God is love, but to know him as the lamb slain for you as your substitute before the foundation of the world. To know him as the wisdom of God, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. To know him as God's son, God's faithful and suffering servant. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of David, the Passover lamb, the son of man, to whom God has given all things. And Jesus says, to believe him, to believe these things about him, is your justification. To believe in him is to have life. To believe the scriptures and their testimony of him is to believe in him. The Old Testament is not for applications and seeing how we can be bold and strong like Daniel and how we can stop the lion's mouth. No. The Lord willing, when we get to Daniel, we are going to find Christ. Because there's a lot of Christ in Daniel. These all were types of Christ and they testified of him. Praise the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this afternoon, Lord, to praise you and worship you and to thank you for your revelation of your son through the scriptures and to cause us to understand these things, things which have been veiled but have now made manifest. They've been open to us by your spirit that we may know these things that even angels have been inquiring about. What the spirit of Christ was saying in all these things. So Lord, we pray and thank you for the testimony of the scriptures about your son 
and the testimony of his gospel. And Lord, we just honor you for your kindness to allow us to understand this thing that has been veiled to men and even now there are billions of people who do not know this truth. Lord, we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.